Section two of the Quatrains of Omar Khayyam of Nishapur, translated by John Payne. Introduction, Part two. Read by Algie Pug. One of the points upon which editors and translators of Khayyam have most widely differed is the question of the exact nature of the poet's religious or philosophical opinions. We have seen, by the extract from the Tariq ul Hukmah, that, although he heaped ridicule upon the Sufis of his time, and unsparingly exposed their hypocrisy and pretentiousness, he was nevertheless claimed as an affiliate or co-religionist by succeeding generations of that sect, which is still influential in modern Persia, and some editors, such as Monsieur Nicolas, who is manifestly, however, in this case, the mere mouthpiece of the Persian Sufi friend or friends who assisted him in translating and annotating the Rubaiyat, do not hesitate, at the present day, to ascribe to all his poems a mystical meaning, accommodated to the Sufi canon, and to pass over, without notice, the innumerable passages which are altogether at variance with such an interpretation. Others, again, like Mr. Winfield, discard, as of slight significance, the numerous quatrains in which Kayam, with an evident fullness of purpose and deliberation, expresses, or infers opinions, completely incompatible with the belief in any form of theism, and magnifying the importance of such passages as can, by any possibility, be twisted into an expression of conformity to revealed religion, insist upon the theory that the poet was, in reality, essentially a believer in the Semitic doctrine of the existence of a personal God, Creator, and Governor of all things. Mr. Fitzgerald, in his preface to the second edition, published in 1868, of his Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, with excellent judgment and critical sense, altogether repudiated the absurd imputation to Khayyam of those Sufi opinions of which he seems, indeed, to have been a principal opponent. And we have already seen that El Kifti, in the passage above quoted, explicitly denies that his poems were susceptible of the mystical interpretation which the men of the cloak sought to place upon them. On the other hand, the opinion expressed of the poet's life and character by the same writer, and fully corroborated by other Oriental historians and biographers, who agree in declaring that he was of ill repute, neik nam ne bood, literally, was not of good name, and that he was inclined to revolt against authority, mail berbegi bood, that is, to heterodoxy and religious nonconformity, and accuse him of a form of rationalism, philosophet, that is, philosophy, in the sense of free thinking or infidelity, derived from the study of the old Greek writers, in whose law he was the foremost scholar of his day, is, in itself, sufficient to negative the hypothesis of his belief in Semitic theism, without the necessity of referring to the many prominent passages in which he heaps ridicule upon the theocratic idea. It is true, indeed, that other portions of his poems contain expressions and allusions which seem, at first sight, to point to a theistic belief on his part, but it must be remembered that poets and poetical writers of all countries, orthodox and unorthodox, have in all ages been in the habit of employing, for poetical purposes, 
the formulas and verbal paraphernalia of current religious beliefs, become by long popular usage an integral part of the language and literature of the lands in which they obtain, and an essential constituent of the material and ornament of literary expression. In Muslim countries, in particular, the language and phraseology of the Qur'an, upon which it must be remembered that the whole formal scheme of Arabic grammar and philology is founded, and which may literally be said to form the essential basis of Muslim culture, are the very essence and foundation of the popular, the literary, and the scientific, no less than of the religious, speech of all Mohammedan peoples, and affect and colour the everyday life of all classes in a far greater degree than do those of the Bible among Christians. And the use, therefore, of Quranic and traditional formulas and phrases is no more a proof of orthodoxy on the part of an Oriental writer than is a similar employment of biblical language with ourselves. No one, for instance, would think of ascribing orthodox sentiments to Alfred de Musset or Heine, of all modern poets, perhaps most like Keam, because of their perpetual appeals to Le Bon Dieu or Der Lieber Gott, or of claiming Mr. Swinburne as a formal believer in Christianity because he wrote his magnificent litany, or because, like all of those post-Jacobean English poets who are worth the name, his poems are full of the music and the colour of that incomparable authorised version, which forms, with the plays of Shakespeare, the main heritage and a chief glory of English literature. To the poet, whose office is not the scientific demonstration of philosophical truth, but the presentation of abstract ideas in a concrete form of the phenomena of experience, the popular conception of a personal deity, to whom may be ascribed the goods, and who may be blamed for the ills of existence, is, in the plastic sense, as indispensable a part of the means and material of his art as are sun, stars, and moon, sea and sky, spring and summer, flowers and trees. Because poetry deals, not alone with that which is ideally good and true, but with humanity, its ideas, its opinions, and, especially, its feelings, right and wrong, good and bad, as a whole, holding nothing human alien from itself, neither making that unclean which the spirit of ideality hath cleansed, and the errors and delusions of mankind are therefore as much and as necessary a constituent of its machinery as their virtues and their certitudes. Kayam, again, continually uses the technical terms of the Sufis, such as, for example, Terik, path, niyaz, desire, need, supplication, etc. Husur, presence, hekiket, certainty, etc., etc. But the Sufi terminology, like that of every metaphysical system of wide dissemination, was, and still is, the common property of Oriental writers, and its use for literary purposes in no way attests the affiliation of the user to the sect whose language he borrows. Moreover, our poet, for the most part, uses the phrases and turns of speech he borrows from both sources, Sufi and Mohammedan, in an obviously satirical or poetical sense, and where it would seem that he does so literally and sincerely, this, to my mind, is due 
not to his belief in the doctrines of the religious or metaphysical systems of whose terminology he avails himself, but to the fact that his own religious and philosophical creed was derived, in common with the latter, although in a purer, more direct and less sophisticated form, from a far older and remoter source, the fount and origin of all the various metaphysical systems which have ministered to the ideal needs of the human race, to wit, the first of all world scriptures, the Vedas, the Bible of that primeval Aryan race to which the world owes its highest development. The religion of the western or southern branch of the great Aryan family, that is, that by which India and Persia were colonized, was originally a simple but elevated form of pantheism, based upon the belief in a supreme impersonal entity, or rather essence of life, from which the world and all existing things proceeded, and symbolized by the reverence or worship of the elemental powers of nature, and, in particular, of light and fire, as the noblest and most venerable of natural forces. The doctrines of this religion are contained in the four Vedas, or books, which are collections of hymns in praise of the deified forces of nature, of ritual and liturgical directions, and of mythological narratives and legends. They are generally allowed to be the oldest literary work in existence, and their origin is, indeed, lost in the dark backward and abysm of time. Although they are conjectured by Sanskrit scholars to have been collected and written down, in the form in which they have reached us, during the conquest by the Hindu branch of the Aryans of the Punjab and northern India generally. The oldest and most important of the four books is the Rig Veda, or Book of Praise, consisting of over a thousand hymns of nature worship. It is supposed, from internal evidence, to have been composed before the invention of writing, and no Sanskrit scholar has, to my knowledge, ventured to assign it to a more recent date than 1400 BC, whilst other authorities of equal weight ascribe to it an antiquity of upwards of 4,000 years. To the original ritual or poetical nucleus of the Vedas were from time to time added what were called Brahmanas and Sutras, being aphoristic, exegetic, argumentative and legendary commentaries upon the mantras or hymns and bearing much the same relation to them as the epistolary part of the New Testament does to the Psalms and the prophetic books of the Hebrew Bible. And the whole was, in process of time, crowned by the addition of a number of explanatory philosophical treatises called the Upanishads, or Sessions, also the Vedantas, or final parts of the Vedas, whence the Vedantic system, expounding, classifying, and illustrating the dogmas and teachings of the Vedas, and evolving, from their primitive poetry of natural religion, a definite theosophical system, called the Vedantic philosophy, which is conjectured to have been first promulgated about 800 years before our era, and has been justly described as the sublimest and most exalted product of human speculation, as applied to the consideration of the problems of existence. It is difficult in the small space, which is all that can here be devoted to the subject, to give any adequate idea of the singularly subtle purport and comprehensive scope of this primeval pantheism, which is still, after so many ages, the creed of hundreds of millions of human beings 
of all orders of intellect, and which offers to a large majority of the highest intelligences of the modern world the only satisfactory explanation or suggestion of explanation of the enigmas of life. My long thought, as Kayam himself says, I cannot tell briefly. But it will suffice, for the present purpose, to set out, in as few words as possible, the nature of its principal tenets, which are, first and foremost, the belief in one universal and impersonal essence of life, present in all things, the least as well as the greatest, in the soul as in the sun, without beginning or ending, that is, Brahman, neuter, not to be confounded with the god Brahma or Brahman, masculine, or with the name of the sacerdotal class, otherwise the undifferentiated self. Over this impersonal self, which is the basis of all existence, and which is the one reality among all unrealities, and being an elusive projection therefrom, is woven, like a veil, the maya, or world figment, all things other than the self being a mere illusion of the senses, due to ignorance, which ceases when one has learned to know that, that is, the self, which alone really exists. The miseries of human life, being a part of the world illusion, are due wholly to ignorance of the secret of the world, and ignorance, the outwards visible sign of which is belief in duality, that is, the separation of subject and object, me and not me, and the consideration of the rest of existing things as distinct and different from oneself. And the deliverance from this ignorance and misery, and, incidentally, from the ever-renascent woes of metempsychosis, the identification of which, by Schopenhauer, with the will to be, is one of the capital spiritual events of the nineteenth century, is to be achieved by the acquisition of knowledge. This latter is to be attained only by withdrawal from the world and repudiation of all its illusory goods and needs, by purging the heart of desire, by self-severance from all the phantasmagoric bonds and attachments of social life and family, and self-devotion to mystic contemplation, which will, gradually, lead the perfected sage to the knowledge of unity, that is, the all and only important fact that all things are one in the undifferenced self, and consequent absorption in that self, which is the sole thing perdurable among all the things that endure not. This acceptance of the doctrine of the unity of life in everything naturally leads the Vedantist to the adoption of mitleid, or sympathy with all things, high and low. One of the chief tenets of his religion is a practice of tenderness towards all forms of sentient life, and what necessarily follows upon this practice, and that of detachment from the world, the observance of the strictest principles of natural morality, of truth, continence, disinterestedness, contentment, and purity of body and soul. Gods and religions are on this side of the evolution of the self, that is, the worship of the first and the practice of the second are good and meritorious, and are even recommended as a preliminary means of purification and mortification of the bodily lusts, and for the satisfaction of the metaphysical needs of those who are unqualified to accept abstract truth. The sage is not forbidden to conform to the cults of his country, and it is recognised that religious conformity 
and liturgical and ritual observances are efficacious in securing the conformer against what is for want of a better word figuratively called the pains of hell and enabling him to obtain what is in like manner called the rewards of heaven but god's hell and heaven are all in fact but a part of the world figment and are subject like mortals to death and transiency the sage when he has learned to know the secret of the world knows their unreality and that of all things save only the self which alone is real and eternal the division of the great aryan family which produced the vedas and which is known by sanskrit scholars as the western or southern division is recorded to have at the time of leaving its ancestral home among the pamir plateaus separated into two portions identical in language religious belief and general racial and social characteristics one of which the indic crossed the himalayas and conquered india whilst the other the iranic colonized persia which was named from them the land of iran or ariana khorasan the ancient nisaya was the very centre and focus of the aryan settlement and its old capital now nishapur originally known as iran shihar or the city of the aryans is fabled to have been founded by the kings of the jemshidite family the first great dynasty of the invading race who long occupied it as their seat of power khorasan has always been regarded as that part of persia in which the aryan civilization longest subsisted in its original vivacity making it the central point of iranian and indeed for a long period of oriental culture generally it was called by its aryan settlers the new area varta or land of the aryans in memory of their original home in farthest northwest asia and many traces of the manners customs and habits of the invading race such in particular as the peculiar feudal system established by the latter survived there till a comparatively modern period the inhabitants of khorasan and especially of the northwest portion the ancient nisaean fields in which nishapur is situate were the most tenacious and successful of all the persians in defending their ancient liberties and religion against the invading turanian and semitic hordes which overran the rest of iran and they were in particular the most pertinacious in refusing to exchange the ancient vedic religion for the debased compromise between the latter and the theistic ideas of semitic and aramean origin which had found their way into the empire in consequence of the conquests of the great cyrus known as zoroastrianism the religion of zoroaster though installed in the reign of darius hystaspes about five hundred b c as the state creed of the empire never in fact succeeded in supplanting the ancient faith the religion of the pure law as the ancient aryans the well-named children of the light called it in khorasan nor was it till the mohammedan conquest that the militant bigotry of the followers of the camel driver of mecca prevailed to suppress it at all events in appearance long as the vestiges of the ancient faith survived in persia it is not till the year 1656 of our era that we hear of an actual persian translation of the most important portion of the vedantic canon the upanishads made by the brahmins of Anaris, at the instance of the indian prince dara shikul 
brother of the emperor, Aureng Zebe, published as the Apnicat, or Sirus Esre, Secret of Secrets, and Latinized in 1801 to 1802 by Anquetil du Perron, whose translation is described by Schopenhauer as a most precious gift bestowed by the present century, under the title of Upnicat id est, Secretum Tegendum. However, the essence of the Upanishads seems, well nigh immediately after their promulgation in their original form, to have made its way westward, and especially to have penetrated into Greece, as well as through Pythagoras, who was fabled to have visited India and Persia, and to have there imbibed the doctrines of the Brahmanic sages, as through Xenophanes and the Eleatic school of philosophers, the Indian origin of whose teachings is not to be mistaken. If this was the case with the comparatively remote and remotely related races of ancient Greece, it is absolutely certain that the Vedantic doctrines must, yet earlier, have found their way, in the full height of their vivacity, to the adjoining country of Iran, so closely akin, in race, position and spirit, to the Hindu Aryans. And Nishapur, being an early and important stage of the great caravan route between India and Persia, must, we may be assured, have been one of the first places to receive the new knowledge in all its vigour and purity. That this was the case, and that the Vedantic philosophy must have found congenial soil and struck deep root in the minds of the Iranians, is evident from the number of pantheistic sects, covering their secret doctrines with veils, more or less thin, of outward conformity to the ruling religion of Islam, which have long existed and still flourish in Persia, and whose inspiration is evidently borrowed, in varying degrees of remoteness, from a Brahmanic source. The two chiefest and most widely spread of them, Sufism itself and its more modern sign of Babism, were the doctrines of which sects, modern Persian society is said to be honeycombed, are but garbled forms of Vedantic pantheism, hopelessly corrupted and despoiled of its pristine significance by the extravagant and unphilosophical attempt to accommodate it to the canon of the Mohammedan creed, the Semitic optimism of which is incurably contrary to the spirit of the Indian philosophy. And Zoroastrianism was, as I have before remarked, another offshoot of the Vedantas, yet more debased and degraded by the infusion of Judaic theism and by the adjunction of the Aramean dogma of the duality of good and evil, both completely foreign to the Vedantic idea. With the general scope of the Vedantic philosophy, it is practically certain that Kayam, native and inhabitant, for the greater part of his life as he was, of a district which was of necessity the chief point of impact and, so to speak, focus of the influence of Indian ideas, must have early become acquainted, and that he, at some period or other of his career, not only held, but openly professed and taught the chief doctrines of the Upanishads, as digested into a regular system by Vyasa, Sandilya, Sankara, and other prominent schoolmen of Hindostan, is attested by El Kifti himself, who, in the passage already quoted from the Tariq ul Hukma, relates that he, Kayam, exhorted to the seeking of the One, the Ruler, by the purification of the corporeal movements or actions, for the cleansing of the human soul. 
an unmistakable description, by a writer manifestly ill-acquainted with the subject, of the process of self-purification, through continence and ascesis, or abstraction from the world, by which the Vedantic sage prepares himself for the attainment of the knowledge of unity, that is, of Brahman, or the self. The words ruler being obviously an unmeaning addition on the part of the orthodox Mohammedan author or abridger. Kayam's philosophical writings, which would assuredly have afforded us conclusive evidence on this point, are apparently irrecoverably lost. But, to my mind, no other evidence is needed than that of the extract above cited, and of the numerous corroborative passages to be found in his poems, to establish beyond reasonable doubt the nature of his religious opinions and teachings. It is difficult indeed to interpret such quatrains, for instance, as those of the drops of water and the sea, number 727, of the ends essentialis and of duality, numbers 412 and 413, of this visible world, number 525, of truth's mysteries, number 532, of The Door of Desire, number 548, of In Quest of Gem's Cup, number 569, of None Ever Saw, number 534, of My Soul in the Spheres Script, number 58, of Sheer Folly, O Sage, number 72, of That Wine, number 175, of This Illusory Moment, number 484, of Seek Not Gladness, number 198, of Wilt Have the Law, number 304, of The One Great Whole, number 349, of This Thy Being, number 455, of The Day When the Blessed Hosts, number 670, of Heart Since Thou Satest, number 756, of Wiles Hiding Thyself, number 757, of For the Sake of the Lust, number 760, of Albeit Nought Go, number 766, of The Pathway of Witlessness, number 779, of Away with Vain Grieving, number 782, of this world's but a breath, number 803, of For the Wine Cup and Ruby Lips, number 807, of Thou Hoot the Compend, number 809, etc., in any other sense than that of Vedantic pantheism. Whenever the occasion arises, he invariably announces, either openly or implicitly, the essential tenets of the Indian philosophy, including the doctrine of metempsychosis, as in quatrains 175, 192, 691, etc., and inculcates the necessity, on the part of the sage, of acquiring knowledge, that is, of the unity of the self, as the one thing important, a quest to be achieved by the renouncement of desire, the purification of the soul from the lusts of the world, and the practice of moral goodness, in its essential meaning of universal sympathy, mitleid, as distinguished from the bastard compromise, the fable agreed upon, which the needs of social life have adopted 
as its representative. Wherever he deliberately indicates his religious belief, it bears no other character, and is stamped with no other hallmark than that of Vedantic pantheism. It is certainly altogether free from Semitic optimism, and has no taint of that fueto judaicus, which is omnipresent in Sufism. I do not think it advisable to lengthen this notice by quoting, in extenso, the various passages of Kayam's poems, many of which I have indicated above, which support my theory of the Indian origin of his philosophical and religious opinions, as I have, as it were, underlined a large number of the passages in question by quoting freely from the Upanishads, wherever I thought it useful to do so, in my notes to the ensuing translation. And with the help of these latter, as well as of the brief abstract above given, of the main principles of the Vedantic philosophy, and by means of a comparison therewith of the poet's ideas, as expressed by him in his quatrains, my readers will find no difficulty in deciding for themselves upon the question. In stating my conviction, as set out in the foregoing pages, that Kayam's philosophic and religious opinions were, in their essential points, based upon the teachings of the Vedantas, I do not for a moment pretend to maintain that he professed all the niceties of the Vedantic doctrines as propounded by the Indian schoolmen, or that, in particular, he practised the asceticism, self-suppression, and other quasi-religious practices comprised under the general name of yoga, which have, in process of time, been grafted upon the austere spiritual simplicity of the original creed, in itself by no means religious, in the ritual and liturgical sense of the term, but corrupted and distorted, like all other ideas of its kind, by alterations and suppressions, and especially by additions, made for the convenience and in the interests of the priestly class, or called for by the supposed necessity of adapting it to the inferior capacity of the general mass of humanity, who are incapable of apprehending abstract truth, untempered by mythological illusion, and, what is yet worse, sophisticated by that spirit of quackery and imposture which has made the word theosophy to stink in the nostrils of the modern world, and has rendered the name of theosophist a synonym for trumpery sorcerer and paltry cheat. But its main principles, it seems to me, there can be no doubt for a student of his poems, were the basis of his creed, the system by which he explained to himself the problems of the universe, and by whose light he guided himself in his navigation of the stormy and sterile ocean of existence. As the modern Christian professes the theological tenets of Christianity, whilst rejecting, as unpractical, the capital principles of ascesis and abnegation, which seem, to the philosophic mind, its most valuable, and indeed its distinctive feature, so we may imagine Kayam, whilst having his belief, at bottom, firmly anchored in the great fundamental ideas of Vedantic pantheism, to have been swayed hither and thither upon the sea of detail and daily practice by the shifting breezes of the poet's fantasy, ever full of most excellent differences, of the doubts and moods which are inseparable from mortal existence. Like Hamlet, he was ever in suspense between the imperious demands of his conscience and the energies of his will, which still urged him to action, and the critical influence of his profound intelligence and his searching wit, which led him to the ultimate conviction 
of the uselessness of all action. Between these two points, the positive and negative poles of the human machine, his humour sports like the electric flash, and the absolute and inconsolable despair, which underlies his clamorous epicureanism and his satirical extravagance, is only made more poignant by the play of that tragic power of laughter which was so prominent a feature of his nature and which is seldom absent from the greatest intelligences. Nor can one sum up his character as it manifests itself to us from the pages of the only work, his quatrains, which he seems to have cared to preserve for posterity, more tersely or more aptly than in the pregnant words with which the greatest critic the world has ever known apostrophizes his intellectual brother, the Prince of Denmark. Toi le vertige de la vie se rêve d'une ombre. Dieu vient-on? Où va-t-on? Pourquoi naître? Pourquoi mourir? Ces allées, ces venues, ces entrées, ces sorties qui signifient tout cela? Est-ce une tragédie? Est-ce une farce? L'univers n'est-il que le cauchemar d'un dieu malade, le déliré de l'éternité ivre d'infini? Au milieu de toutes ces brutes qui s'écroyent des hommes, parce qu'ils ne boutent pas ces tiens sur les pieds de derrière, toi, le seul qui pense, qui aille le sentiment de la tranquillité de la vie, et qui avant son tremblant, sur cette mince lame de rosera, sur cette imperceptible fil d'araignée qu'on nomme le présent, séant de chaque coute un gouffre, le passé et l'avenir, l'un qui t'adagé englouti, l'autre qui t'engloutira demain, pauvre Kéam, tu es obligé d'attacher à ta sagesse le grelot de la folie, et de cacher ton inconsonable anxiété sous une bizarrerie apparente. End of section 2